with getting the facts straight. And this is just like being an investigative journalist. Um, The person who is investigating knows that there's a story and goes out and sees that there's a drama and runs around and tries to uncover the story behind the story, the facts behind the drama or the um, appearance of the way things are. And often a very different story is revealed from this investigation. This is the kind of thing we're doing in meditation, in practice, except for we're doing it in an inner way. We're doing it on the inside rather than focusing so much externally or in terms of situations or people or or objects. We're focusing on our internal situation, on our internal condition. And it's really an uncovering or a revealing of the way things are. This is the very essence of our practice. It's what the word vipassana means, is seeing things the way they are. Seeing things clearly. Seeing our life, our world, our insights, our situation in a clear and real way. The samadhi practice that we've been working with, along with wisdom, because wisdom accompanies us all the time, is a great support for working with wisdom in a deeper way. It's necessary in order to really fully begin to investigate and deepen our seeing. Because of our conditioning and our likes and our dislikes and tradition, the tradition we were brought up in, and a number of other things, we tend to not see things the way they are. We tend to believe the appearance, believe the superficial explanation. There's a word in Pali, which is the language that the Buddha originally spoke in. Uh, The word is anubodha. And what it means is seeing accordingly, or understanding accordingly. And this understanding accordingly means not seeing clearly, but seeing according to tradition, background, upbringing, situation in life belief system, these kinds of things. I'll give you an example of this. I have a sister who has two children. One child is four, a boy, and the other child is about nine months old. And the nine-month-old girl (coughs) is nursing, still nursing. And the, my sister, the mother of the children, has a rule that her son can only eat in the kitchen at the kitchen table. Is not allowed to eat in the living room because he's four-year-old, so he tends to um, make a mess. So he was eating in the kitchen at his table, and my sister was nursing her nine-month-old in the living room. 
And <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> he looked over at her, and he said, um, he had this, this really extremely puzzled look on his face and resentment. Looked over at her, and he said, Mom, how come Kelsey gets to eat in the living room and I can't? <laughs> his, his father, by the way, said, because she doesn't make crumbs. <laughs> But this is an example of seeing according to four-year-old eyes. That's how he saw it. There was no kind of understanding in terms of anything other than eating. This was what he was seeing was eating, and nothing else mattered. And so there was this, um, um, this feeling of being perplexed and um, a bit of resentment, and you know, it had to be explained to him. So that's, that's an example of this seeing according to what we can see, which is according to our limitations. And what we're aiming for in practice is a complete understanding, a whole understanding, without limitation, that doesn't have anything to do with how we were brought up or with our particular tr tradition or religion, or age, or identity as a man or as a woman, or as a child or as an adult, but is a very whole and complete understanding of exactly what's happening, of the way things really are. So this is the essence of our practice. This is where we're, um, what we're moving into. And the emphasis for the rest of the retreat um, will not be a neglect of samadhi, but will be adding um, some more digging, some more investigation, moving into the wisdom aspect of the practice. Another reason that we understand accordingly or don't understand in a full and complete way is because of what are called the kalesas the veils over the mind. It can be translated as toxins in the mind. Um, sometimes it's translated as defilements, but sometimes that word has, doesn't resonate very well because it's, it's not something that one blames or judges oneself for. It's just the forces of nature within, of greed, of hatred, and of delusion. In other words, the forces that create suffering, the forces that cause us to suffer. And so we see through these veils. Whatever we see is through one of these veils, through the veil of greed or through the coloration, the mind being colored by aversion, and then seeing something, seeing somebody do something perhaps, and not seeing that person, not seeing the situation that the person is in, but seeing through aversion or seeing through some anger and delusion, not really seeing what's going on at all. So these, these veils um, are what we are working with in practice so that we can lift them up, so that we can see clearly, so that we can, through understanding, just lift up the veils. And what brings us to everything I've been talking about so far, is mindfulness. This is the whole practice path. 
mindfulness, being, being in contact with what is going on in our experience, quieting the mind down, and being in direct contact with life, being in actual contact, so directly experiencing life, whatever it is that's occurring. In this way, we can get close to our experience so that we can really see exactly what's happening. So that perhaps there is delusion occurring, we can see it. Perhaps there is greed in the mind, we can see it. Perhaps there is aversion, we can see it. Whatever it is that's occurring, mindfulness brings us into contact with that which is concrete. And when we're in contact with our experience, it is possible to begin to see more and more deeply what is actually happening. As the awareness deepens, more and more is revealed to us. And so we're naturally able to see in a deeper and a clearer way. And mindfulness is what brings us there. In the moment, being in contact with whatever is occurring allows us to see more clearly. The practice as a path goes in different directions, and it's different for each one of us. But many times in the beginning of practice, um, a certain balance of mind is necessary to work with. In other words, the development of a certain amount of equanimity in the mind, so that things don't knock us over quite as easily, so that something happens and we're not completely so excited and elated and hyper about it that we just get knocked over and lost in the pleasure of it. And in the other direction, when things happen that aren't so easy to handle, we are more easily able to handle them. (coughs) And the mind begins not in any way to flatten out or get numb, to become more and more alive and awake, but naturally get stronger. It naturally strengthens itself. And sometimes this is necessary in the beginning of practice. Um, This balance, working with more and more balance of mind, not in any way to perfection, but just just so that we're not knocked off balance quite as easily. And also sometimes in the beginning, working at um, things that haven't been attended to in one's life. Often when we sit, we see um, areas in our life that really have been neglected for a really long time. Experiences with people, relationships that are unhealthy, situations that we may be in, our work life, a lot of different things. We see need work, need changing. And so meditation, often in the beginning, it's not that it Um, it's that everything is totally smooth going after that. But sometimes in the beginning, a lot of this work is needed, where we're just seeing the areas in our life that we need to um, bring attention to, on and off the cushion. Healing relationships, 
working in the right situation for us, bringing attention to various areas of life that have been neglected. And we're not looking for any kind of perfection in this, the perfect situation, the perfect relationship, the perfect work situation. We're not looking for an extraordinary balance of mind where whatever it is that comes up, you're just totally like a tree and and unmoving. Nothing like this. It doesn't have to go that far, but just a balance. And just, um, just so that there's, once life is not really problematic, so that when you're on the cushion, there's not the sense of there's a whole lot to be taken care of, that many different areas of life need to be taken care of, and there's a natural resting and a calmness that comes out of that. So often this is the beginning of practice. Um, People come to practice from different places, so maybe for you this is not true. But um, many of us begin in this way, and it's a very, very important aspect, because if these, these areas aren't taken care of, the mind is just very easily rippled and um, moves a lot more than it, it need move. And then what begins to happen as practice deepens, as we continue along the path, is that we're able to look in a bit of a less personal way. We're able to look in a way that is not totally bound to our personal stories, our biographies, our dramas, and our, our melodramas often, our soap operas. We can begin to see universal characteristics of life. And this is just a natural expansion. Again, part of the beginning of practice often has to do with biography, often has to do with the personal story. And as the practice deepens, we expand outward from there. We just allow the mind to uh, stretch a bit more, and we begin to see in a bit of a more universal, a bit of a (coughs) bigger way. And this just continues to happen, bigger and bigger and bigger, deeper and deeper and deeper. One of the things that we see when we look in this kind of a way is the characteristic of impermanence. We begin to see that everything is changing on different levels. This fact that everything has a beginning, has a middle, has an end. Everything that arises exists and then passes away. This is totally obvious. We can see it all around us. We can see that the sun rises and sets. We can see that there is birth and there is death. We can see it in the seasons, especially in New England where it's so radically obvious. We can see it in terms of buildings coming up and going down. Another place that we can see it is in areas of our life where there's um, some kind of of, um, sustained commitment. What I mean is in relationship, relationships with one's family or one's friends or an intimate relationship. It's possible to see an enormous amount of change when 
you stick around someone for a long enough time. So we can see change in that area too. You can see change when you take a walk in the same place every day. A lot of different things changing. Nature and uh, leaves and trees and all sorts of different things to see if you're taking the same walk every single day. Often I walk in, I live in Cambridge, and I often walk near Harvard Square, and there's a particular place when I walk where it seems like the building is constantly changing. I mean, every other day there's another store there that wasn't there before. A donut shop, and then a, a clothes store, and then a record store. It just is so quick. It's amazing. <laughs> Disconcerting, too. And then, other than Oh, one, one more place that's um, sustained. In retreat setting, right, right in this retreat setting, we can see um, it in the area of, of sittings, how one sitting is so different than another sitting. How all day long there are all these different sittings and they're all changing. They're all different from one another. They're not the same. And then on a subtle level, which is um, harder to see, we can see constant change. From moment to moment we can see that everything is changing. Sensations, opinions, viewpoints. We can see that the breath is changing from moment to moment. And what allows us to see this level of change, which is not so very obvious in the beginning, is more and more quietness within the mind, quieting the mind down more and more, and a continuity of attention. If we're looking and then there's a lot of space, and then we look again and there's a lot of space, a lot of uh, a gap in the attention, then it's not so easy to see this level of very, 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 very quick changing of everything happening inside of us. Whereas as the mind gets quieter, and as there is more and more continuity of attention, it's easier. This whole level reveals itself to us. It's like um, a hidden level that we don't see usually with the ordinary mind. We miss it. We're not aware of it. And as the mind deepens, and as there is more and more continuity of attention, we can see this level of reality more and more easily. In terms of the body changing, sensations, feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, changing very quickly. <coughs> we can see memories, perception, mental states, emotions changing quite rapidly, sometimes extraordinarily rapidly. So, so what? Why is it important to see impermanence? Why am I dwelling or being obsessive about this one characteristic in the universe? What does it matter to us? How, what does it matter in our life, which is the only place that it matters? What we see more and more in practice is that whether we have the best ideals or the best belief system going, it doesn't matter. Practice is all about turning inside and seeing for oneself what is going on. Testing whatever is being said. 
testing for oneself, bringing it inside, and seeing, is this true, or is it just a nice story? So it doesn't have to do with Buddhism, emphasis on the ism. It doesn't have to do with blindly believing in anything at all. It has to do with coming inside and seeing what is true and what is not true. Sometimes we get mad at the practice. You know, it's making me do something. It's making me suffer. It's making me see something I don't want to see. And just always helpful to remember that it's not the practice, and it's not Buddhism, and it's not ideals in any way. It's just us. It's just being in contact with us. And we happen to be in a particular posture when we're doing that, and a particular form is being encouraged. But it's just us. So, some of the implications of this um, deeper and deeper seeing of impermanence, insight into impermanence. One is that a natural process begins as we see impermanence on a deeper and deeper level. Something naturally happens, which is the intelligent response of consciousness to the seeing. It's something that just naturally happens. We don't have to force it. We don't have to make anything happen. The natural intelligence within responds to this seeing. And as the seeing goes deeper and deeper, the intelligence of consciousness matches that. And in this natural process, what begins is an untying of knots an untying of the knots in the mind. Very often the body gets into the picture because we many times carry those knots within the body. And so the body begins to start releasing and and letting go. In the mind we experience it as an unclenching within the mind. The mind just naturally begins to let go and the seemingly solid begins to break up. That which we think always is and always will be begins to break up as we begin to see more clearly. Ideas about who we are begin to change. Ideas about what what makes us happy begins to change. Ideas about what makes us suffer, what causes suffering. All of this goes through transformation. All of this is part of our process, part of our path, is changing ideas about happiness and about suffering and about peace. What we see, what that makes us suffer, what we begin to see, is something called tanha, or craving. Excessive clinging is a way to put it. It's not to be confused with um, a yearning for enlightenment or a yearning to help people or a natural yearning of the mind to wake up because we need this. We need this yearning and this urgency. And so that's not the kind of desire that's being spoken of. Um, The kind of desire that's being spoken of, this word tanha, translated, I think, very um, well as thirst. 
always has some kind of self-centeredness in it. That's how you can identify it as tanha and not a healthy kind of yearning or longing. It always has some kind of self-orientation in it, of wanting, of I want. And it doesn't care about others. So this is a way that, that this kind of excessive clinging can be identified. It can just have a little tinge of this in it, but this is what is meant by it. In other words, there can be a situation where there is a, a healthy longing, perhaps the longing to wake up, to um, realize some wakefulness, and this being a very healthy yearning or longing. And then perhaps it's tainted by um, something that is <coughs> craving or thirst or something that does not settle correctly, something that doesn't um, is causing suffering in some way, an itch where one is not able to really be in the moment because of this excessive kind of, of clinging. We have to remember that with this um, self-centered desire, thirst, tanha, that it's really a force of nature. It's not that it's good or bad. We're not looking at it in terms of it being good or bad. We are looking at it in terms of whether it causes us suffering or not. That's it. That's the place we want to be centered on. It's very easy in giving a talk like this, in listening to these things. Self-centeredness sounds terrible. Uh, Craving, clinging, greed, all these things sound really bad. And so it's very easy to just think of it in that way as as, um, this is good and thirst craving is bad. We're not relating to it in that way. We're relating to it as whether it causes us suffering or not. This is is where we want to um, relate to thirst from. It's the healthiest place to relate to it from. And it's a real place. This is where what we can be centered on. Is it causing suffering or is it not? And all the good, bad stuff is just the conditioning in the mind. One of the implications of thirst, one thing that it does, is that it tends to limit our world. It tends to tighten and constrict our world. For instance, just an example, if you're very much focused on clothes and you really um, want really nice clothes, and it's, it's um, a bit on the obsessive side. That's all you see when you go down the street, is just clothes. You don't see people, you don't notice buildings or anything else, you notice people's clothes. And perhaps there's a judgment, I like that those clothes, she looks really great. Oh, yuck, you know, I don't like those clothes at all. Or I want those clothes, they look really great. Or I wouldn't touch those rags. You know, the mind starts talking in this kind of a way. And when we can let go of this kind of clinging, the world naturally enlarges. The space opens up for us. And we gain perspective that there's more in life than clothes, if that's, that's what's being focused on. Or whatever it is, there's more in life than it. I, used, I spent some time as a sign painter, painting signs. And for a while, all I saw was signs. I walked down the street. I mean, there's not all that many signs, but I saw all of them, all of the signs in the world. And there was a lot of judgment 
very good artist, very nice sign, you know, not a good artist, I could do better, this kind of thing. And my world was, was quite small when I had sign mind, <laughs> painting sign minds. <laughs> Our relationship to what is occurring changes when we're not deluded by the illusion of things being permanent. We relate to what occurs in a really different way. Larry was talking about anger last night, ways of working with anger. And to use that same example in terms of how seeing into impermanence helps us to work with anger. When anger arises, there is a moment of anger, and then there might be another moment of anger, and then there might be another moment of um, sadness, maybe another moment of ease, maybe another moment again of anger. In other words, it, it moves a lot. When we see it in terms of it being permanent, it looks like it's just anger and it's just going to last forever. And that's the way it is. And we get that idea in our mind that this is never going to be over. And this is quite a um, tight, constricted way to relate to what is happening. And it causes us an enormous amount of suffering. So looking at anger, um, seeing it in terms of impermanence, means being with the anger, the actuality of anger, these sensations in the body, the um, aura or the, the um, atmosphere of anger, the thoughts in the mind, the conversations, being aware of anger itself and not getting stuck on this thought of this is the way it is, this is the way it's going to be. Very often with pain, with physical pain in the body, um, we relate to it in this way. We start a sitting and the knee begins to hurt five minutes into it and the mind immediately clicks in this is the way this sitting is going to be, period. No room around it. The sitting is going to be one of pain. So we can begin to break that up by seeing that these are our thoughts about things being permanent. It's not reality, it's our thoughts. There's a great deal of freedom possible when we relate in this way. Um, it's very different than the peace that comes from concentration, from concentrating the mind. When a difficult emotion occurs and one um, lets it go, and, or puts it aside rather, and just comes back to the breath, it helps. It helps quite a bit. Um, it tends to allow us to not feed the anger, to not get really involved in it. But the peace that comes from actually seeing through anger, through seeing what anger is, is very, very different than just laying it aside and coming back to the breath, which is very helpful. It's relaxing and it gives us a way to work with it that is much more creative than just feeding it actually looking at the anger itself begins the untangling of it, begins to allow for the release of the anger or whatever it else that it is that's occurring. And there's such a great deal of freedom in that when 
we can allow anything to occur anger, jealousy, sadness, grief, loneliness, whatever it is, allowing all these things to occur and just allowing them to pass in and out without adhering to our ideas about permanency. Just allowing them to visit and to leave, to visit and to leave without keeping them in, without um, feeding them and offering them enticement to stay inside. Just allowing them to come and to go. And seeing them in terms of impermanence is, is a way to do this. When we're lost in the idea of permanence, uh, what we generally do is we cling to one moment of that experience and then we label the whole thing as being that. Uh, this is in terms of being a good sit or a bad sit. You know, you hear people talking like that or maybe you've talked to yourself in that way that I had a good sitting before lunch and I had a really bad sitting before tea. And maybe there were many, many moments that were really lousy, but the whole sitting was not bad because there are so many moments in a sitting that some of them were at ease. Some of them were not what one would call bad. And the same in a good sitting. It's all changing. It's not, um, it's not all the same. Another example of this is that um, I taught yoga a number of years ago maybe 10 or 12 years ago now. And um, when I began doing it, I had these classes. And um, the class was probably about an hour, an hour and a half. And however way the class began, I would assume it was going to be that way. So if we started and people weren't really able to do the postures and they had kind of sad faces, and um, tortured faces. <laughs> I would get this feeling of being despondent and insecure. And, you know, they might have had a really bad day, and yet it was because of my yoga class that they were looking this way and, you know, looking so sad. And the rest of the sitting, I would feel that way. I would feel anxiety. I would feel um, insecure about the whole thing. When it went really good and people came in and had really happy faces on them, and they might have just had a really nice day and had nothing to do with this yoga class, but they happened to have look very light, I would feel very excited and ah, you know, and, and a little bit hyper about it, a little bit too much. And the rest of the class was like that. And so I would extend it out, this insecurity, extending the insecurity into the whole entire class. This was a bad class. Um, when there was happiness and people were really fluid and just, you know, flew around and did the postures really well, I would feel the opposite. I would feel overexcited. And so the whole class was like that. And of course, no class was like that. Some classes, people were happy midway through, or at least a few minutes, even if it started off in a kind of a funny way, and the other way around too. And so again, freedom in being able to let go of those ideas, whatever they are, and just to be in the moment with the changes with whatever it is that's occurring. Because of tanha, because of thirst, there's a focus on lack rather than on contentment. We tend to focus on what we don't have rather than what we do have. Um, it's a reaching out for something 
rather than a settling back into what is within, what we can find within when we just are quiet and look. An example might be living here and um, experiencing your room in a certain way. You know, all the curtains don't match the floors and um, the color schemes are all off and, <laughs> and orange, you know, orange floors and um, very tiny, you know, maybe stuffy. I don't know. I don't know that exactly because a lot of them have rooms, have, have windows, but certainly very small, you know, not like your cozy room at home. And often a focus on, or maybe a roommate that you don't really um, feel so good about, and so, or have, even having problems with, a focus on what we don't have, a focus on the lack, instead of the fact that we have a roof over our heads and we have a room and we're in a place that's protected. Um, you know, not to get goody-goody about it at all, and not to try to paint any kind of rose-colored picture, but just that we tend, many times our tendency is to focus on um, what we don't have, when there can be a great deal of happiness on satis satisfaction in the moment on what we do have. And I think this just takes some kind of um, reflection and perhaps um, working more with cultivating gratefulness and seeing what it is that we do have and, and being happy about it, being a little more content about it. It tends to lead us in the wrong direction. Um, we say that we want peace and happiness and we say we want to find out about life and live in a deep way. And when we're caught up in craving, in thirst, we're going in the opposite direction. We're going away from happiness. We're going directly, straight train towards suffering. Um, it's kind of like getting on a train and um, going someplace. And midway through, you find out that you have the wrong ticket and you're on the way, you're, you're going the opposite way to where you want to go to. But because it's so pleasant in the place, because the food is good, because maybe you like your, your companion next to you, you're having a nice chat, we just keep going. So we're traveling in comfort, but we're traveling in the wrong direction. Tanha can't, is a force of nature, and this letting go of it can't be forced. It's really a case of just watching more and more um, how things change, seeing impermanence more and more in our lives and inside. And rather than trying to let go, rather than trying to get rid of anything, it's really a case of watching everything leave, because that's what will happen as we watch everything that arises passes away. So there's no need to let anything go. There's, there's absolutely no need to try to let go. All we have to do is be patient and quiet and just watch it leave in its own time. I don't mean to simplify it by saying all we have to do, because sometimes that's a very difficult thing to do. But that, that is all. It's, it is just watching everything leave, whatever it may be. And acknowledging the holding in a non-judgmental way. Acknowledging our places of attachment acknowledging um, what we are clenching very tightly to. 
And rather than blaming ourselves, rather than getting judgmental about it, exploring that attachment itself, exploring the holding, rather than being too eager to let something go or to um, make yourself watch it leave, it's rather just um, acknowledge the holding on and to explore what that feels like. Is it, does it feel good to hold on to something? Does it work? It's kind of like hold, trying to hold on to water, where if you hold on, if you're trying to hold water in your hand and you're holding too tightly, it just slithers out. You can't hold it. Whereas if you hold water very, very lightly, not clenched, but very in a relaxed kind of way, it is possible to take a drink of water with the hands. So it's this kind of, of thing. So rather than trying to let go, it's encouraging seeing. It's encouraging mindfulness. And in the seeing, there is the understanding and there is the natural unclenching. Each of us are caught in different ways. It's not the same for all of us. Some of us are very attached and caught to emotions. Some of us are attached to our ideas, to great ideas. Some of us are attached to the body. So it's a very different process for each one of us, even though it's the same thing. All of us experiencing, experience suffering because of not seeing impermanence, because of tanha or craving. But the attachment tends to be in different areas in our life. So this is what we want to see too, is to respect the different kinds of conditioning that each one of us has, and not to think that it's in any way the same. It also comes in pieces many times. The um, being able to unclench or let go comes in pieces. It doesn't come all at once. Um, It affects different areas of our life at different times and in different ways. So we need to be aware of this too. In this way, working with the seeing of impermanence, working with seeing attachment, seeing craving, and seeing the relationship between impermanence and craving, meditation becomes a protection in our lives, in our mind. Meditation becomes a way to safety, a way to a true security, which is through understanding. This understanding being the true place to rest, the true place of security. And also, it not only being negative protection against all the natural things that happen to us in life that are uh, changing in quite devastating ways, but also it opens up enormous possibilities, enormous creativity in us. It opens up the door to true understanding, the byproduct of understanding being peace and joy. The Buddha said that as fruitful as generosity is, more fruitful than that is keeping the five precepts. As fruitful as keeping the five precepts is, more fruitful than that is maintaining loving kindness 
for as long as it takes to milk a cow. Now, I don't actually know how long it takes to milk a cow, but a lot of agricultural references, but we can kind of guess that it's not that long. As fruitful as being, maintaining loving kindness for as long as it takes to milk a cow, maybe the perceiving of impermanence for the duration of a snap of a finger is even more fruitful than that. Um, I cared for an older man for about six months just before he died. This was some number of years ago. And we became, it was a job, but we became very close friends. And we worked a lot with meditation, a lot with awareness. And I was with him when he died. He was in the hospital, and he um, went into a coma. But just before he went into the coma, he put his head, his hand up to his head, and he scratched it, kind of in a, uh, like, like this, and he said, oh, so that's the way it is. And then he went into the coma, and then he died. <laughs> so I don't know what that meant. <laughs> but it was certainly an inspiration. <laughs> So why don't we sit for a moment or two together? So we'll have a walking now and meet back here for a sitting at 8.30. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.